Welcome to 3 a.m. What's Keeping You Up at Night, a production of the McFarland Group. We continue our series from white to anti-racist with Dr. Devin DeLauder. This is a conversation you will want to listen to again and again and share. There is a moment in the conversation where the parallel universes of how one's color in a society sees and depicts another affects a child, a teenager, a young adult, a professional, and a father's vantage point to his community. It's breathtaking. My takeaway at that moment is that white stereotypes in the black community have to do with what white people do, usually to black people. Black stereotypes in the white community have to do with what blacks are. Incriminating, right? Whites are depicted by their actions, abusive, distrustful, as the core of the stereotype, but blacks are depicted by their essence, inferior, dangerous. The social construct of race was never more evident to me than in this conversation. There is no easy fix to this, but people like Devin can get us to take action. As a way of a formal introduction, Dr. Devin DeLauder is the head of school at New Hope Academy in Franklin, Tennessee, a school founded to provide an educational experience where all children from very different backgrounds are seen and honored in and outside of the classroom. We are supported once again by the wonderful folks at Relationary Marketing, still guiding us through recording sessions at our own homes. Mine in a two by six closet stuffed with pillows and my guests in their own imaginatively concocted studio. So now you understand if there's any sound differentials during this series, it's on us. There is so much to talk about and Devin honors us with his story. Let's jump in. Devin, it is so wonderful to have you with us on 3 a.m. What's keeping you up at night in this important series that really started uh, with Mr. Floyd's murder. And I mean, you and I've talked about it a lot. Uh, and it's really a matter of how do you bring a white middle-aged woman from white to anti-racist or whatever that label is going to become, right? Because I think we're still in a very fluid state. But I guess what I'm talking about is kind of culpable silence actually derived from ignorance, which is not an excuse, to actionable steps. That's kind of where we are and what we're, we're hoping for. Sounds great. Great. So I, I've already told you this fumbling is because I think this is a quintessential conversation that has to produce uh, empathy but not that kind of, um, gosh, I'll use a 19th century term, parlor room empathy, but really moves people to begin to feel what they'll never, ever experience. And for me, there are a variety of situations, of course, but I think being a black man in this society is something we all just need to talk about and need to have conversations where it's just a matter of some descriptives, first of all, right? Right. Absolutely. So my thinking, and you can help me with this because I, I would love it. I want to be as effective as possible, right? 
My thinking is kind of to do a, a timeline, if you will. So this is yeah. kind of, we emailed about it a little bit before where, you know, it's kind of like what it's like to grow up, uh, what your parents taught you and what they had to teach you. Because I think there's there's that complete uh, bifurcation in terms of what parents have to say to children. Right. Right. Depending on their color. Um, and then growing up as a black male, what it meant in the classroom community, uh, you know, you're an athlete, what that meant, um, thinking about college and career and, and also thinking about family, what that means for you as a parent of black children right. and as an educator. And, you know, and then we'll get to some maybe some actionable steps. So if that seems to be a good way to help me and those who are listening understand, also understanding, gosh, just to be fair, this is not a monolithic description. This is a particular individual's um, kind of journey growing up and becoming just a beloved educator um, and change maker. So I want to be really sure that I'm not insulting you by saying, and so you speak for all black people who, right, who are male. That's, that would be, uh, that's not what I'm trying to do. But I'm hopeful that your experience will be somewhat universal. So we have a, a real clear understanding of things we will never experience and never truly, truly understand. So have I fumbled enough? And <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think you've done, done a great job of kind of setting the table for the context for, of this conversation, uh, as well as the expected outcomes. I think a lot of times today, uh, we're having these conversations out of a, a series of emotions that have caused us to bring these ideas or thoughts to the forefront. And so having a well-rounded conversation that also includes the emotional responses to the things that are happening in our society, I think are important. Uh, I would say before I jump into kind of the timeline piece is, A, I think this is an important inflection point in the history of our country because today, as opposed to, say, the 1960s when the civil rights movement uh, was, was happening and there were so many leaders and so many people standing out front for a particular set of rights. Uh, I think one of the things that the benefit or beauty of the civil rights movement is Dr. King and the folks who were with and around and supporting uh, and against him uh, brought these voices to the table. And so I think it can't be overstated the importance of that movement to give voice to a community and a generation of people who for years had been voiceless. And I think one of the things that we have to, and I told my students this often, is there's a, there's a difference between compassion uh, and sympathy. Right. So we want to make sure that we bring this conversation to the table, not that we emote these emotions uh, that will give us this sympathetic uh, outlook towards someone else's experiences. Right. I think one of the things that we want to do as we look towards end goals or end results is truly help folks to understand through relationships how to be empathetic and compassionate towards the, the people in their community. And whether those, that community is a local community or us as a nation or as the global community, I think that idea of helping to tell these stories in a way that allow people to start to develop or build compassion for one another, I think is the key piece in helping us move forward. Um, and so 
from my personal perspective, uh, I do feel like to an extent, we've had these conversations in the barbershop for 30 years of my life. Mm. Uh, race, race related conversations across a variety of spectrum has been at the core of who I've been since the first time I stepped into a barbershop when I was five years old. Uh, my uncle was a barber. And so often you hear the term that, that the barbershop is the black man's uh, country club. And so I learned by listening to men older than me, uh, generations older than me, have these conversations. The other thing that I think is unique about this conversation is because I've had this conversation in so many settings with other black men, I feel like there are some common threads, right? So if, if someone is listening to this conversation and want to, want to have a list of takeaways, for example, I think it would be um, amazing if they could take these ideas and reach out to people who are in their sphere of influence to compare and contrast the things that we are going to discuss and we're going to talk about specific to my experience and your experience and see if those things hold true, right? That's the scientific method, right? We, we come to the table with this hypothesis. That hypothesis usually comes from this observation that we've made in the world around us. And then we test it out, right? We, we take that hypothesis and we try to break it up into as many pieces as possible. And we test it in different settings to see if the conclusion that we thought we would come to is, is true. Sometimes it does. And sometimes there's, there's dissonance between what we expected and what the real outcome is. But the process is the thing that makes that scientific method valuable. And I think that's the piece that's been missing in a lot of the conversations that I've seen recently is that people want to, to jump to the end and come up with solutions or conclusions when some of those hypotheses may or may not be true, or they may or may not be true in a particular setting. And so again, led by compassion and led by this understanding um, that we are a part of this process that hopefully brings us together. Um, I think, like I said, there are a lot of components in my life that are going to be similar to a lot of the, the Black men that I know. Uh, a lot of those uh, are regional. Um, a lot of those are generational. But I think the important thing is a lot of these conversations are being had within our community. The question is, in your circles, in your sphere of influence, are you able to to pull some of those things apart to truly, truly understand and, and get a better understanding of what that looks like in your setting? Um, so I, I'll, I'll start with this just from from my earliest ages. Uh, one of the things that I think is important to note is, A, as you mentioned before, I'm an educator. Um, I came to Christian education specifically um, because I understand the, the importance of a biblical foundation. But I think also that mindset or that perspective holds true in life. So for my life, I moved around a lot when I was a child. Uh, I grew up in poverty. I grew up the oldest of three three kids. Uh, my mom uh, battled drug and alcohol addiction like a lot of the, the kids in the, the 80s generation. And so there were a lot of things that were, according to, to social norms, dysfunctional about my family. But the thing that, that was consistent throughout my childhood is I grew up in a predominantly African-American setting. Uh, most, if not all, of the teachers, pastors, community supporters, workers, coaches, all of those things that I grew up with through elementary school were all Black. Moving into a white space when I got to middle school was a complete culture shock for me. 
and so the things that I heard or were told or overheard about white people or other cultures uh, were just that. These were anecdotal tales that I heard as a child because I never really got a chance to experience those. I remember moving uh, to a smaller town here in Tennessee when I was in middle school. Uh, and I remember going to the classroom and recognizing for the first time that I was the only black child in the classroom. To that point, I had never been close enough to a white person to really have an interaction with them. And so here I am now in, in, in eighth grade, sitting in this classroom and seeing people that are different than me. And so it wasn't until that moment that I really started to think back on and reflect on some of those things that have been told to me or that I overheard as a child. And so the other piece of that uh, that I think is important today, especially given this, this context that we're talking about, is truly the only non-Black people that I interacted with as a child were police. And so, as you can imagine, there was this fear and apprehension towards police because a lot of the people in my community didn't have great experiences with them. I tell, uh, as I tell my story, I, I, I remind people that until I was uh, older in life, uh, in college, I never had a positive experience with a police officer. And I'm not saying that that was all the police's fault, but so you have this, this environment where there are these anecdotal experiences about white people. There's this lack of diversity within our community. And the only true interactions that we had with non-Black people were negative experiences with police officers. And so it's not coincidental, in my opinion, that now as adults, a generation of people are having to figure out and, and really unpack our biases because we've had to use them as a, as a method of protection. Uh, in a lot of different settings growing up. And so now we come to the George Floyd situation and all of those things come back because for our entire life, we've been pushed into these settings that are new for us, that we come with these negative connotations. And now we have to prove ourselves. And now we have to deal with microaggressions. And now we have to overcome fears of police officers or other authority figures who we've been told our whole lives aren't working in our best interest. And yes, as I grew older, I started to have more positive experiences. Uh, one of the most influential people in my life is, is a man who is as close to me as my father. So I, I had the benefit of having those truly genuine long-term relationships that helped me change my opinions and my thoughts about uh, interactions with folks outside of my, my culture. But that was a long journey. Uh, and I think a lot of times we hear and see these conversations as young people and those start to of impact us in, at later ages in ways that we can't articulate until we truly start to engage in dialogue in, in those conversations. Thank you for all of that. It's interesting, and I, you know, this is where I'll step in it as a white person, but as you were speaking about kind of the setup of your neighborhood and that it was predominantly a Black neighborhood, a Black community, and then you find yourself the only one in a white classroom. And I began to wonder, you know, so stereotypes on both sides, right? Um, right? Horrendous ones, right? So, but I have to ask, so how were whites described to you? I understand the police and that's, I mean, that's a 400 year history, right? But I don't know, how were whites depicted, right? Because we have these huge, 
monolithic racial constructs because of uh, social constructs, because of race, right? Stereotypes, prejudice. So uh, I'm wondering what stereotypes, in addition to the police, you were brought up with. What did you think white people were like? (laughs) Um, So the primary part that was just reinforced over and over was that you couldn't trust white people, that historically they had taken advantage of, of black people so long. And you hear stories of, of slumlords, right? Uh, people who are landlords in our community who never you know, take care of the property. And so we're forced to live in these dilapidated situations because these landlords who we trust to, to provide us a safe house uh, aren't doing what they're supposed to do. Or if you go into a store that you have to, Make sure that these are spaces that you are overly open and transparent so that the perception is going to be when you walk in the door uh, that you're there to steal or that you're there for, for, no, for no good reason. Or that there's this inherent fear of Black men, right? That all Black men uh, are dangerous or violent or over-sexualized. And so you have to, again, always be aware, even as a child, Right? Even as a 10, 11, 12-year-old child, always be aware of your surroundings when you're in the company of white people, because not only do they bring these negative stereotypes about you to the table and to their interaction, but also that if you, if you do something that will uh, support these negative stereotypes, that just gives them more fuel to say, see, I told you so. They're all like this or that or, right. or the yeah. other thing. And so and so you are you are constantly reminded, regardless of how old or what position a white person was in, to say yes, sir, or no, sir, uh, and to be agreeable and, and all of those things, which, again, left this inferiority complex in, in, in you as a child um, just because you wanted to prove your self-worth every time that you are in the presence of, of someone who wasn't in your community. And so the Maya Angelou poem that, that talks about the, the mask that we wear, and we are reminded that it's not just these huge, big things that we have to coach switch in, right? You have to live in constant comparison when you're in the presence of people who are outside of your community. And so you're always on high alert. You're always aware to put your best foot forward or to assuage the the fears of other people who are in your presence. And those things are are absolutely tiring, right? And so again, if you fast forward those things that you that I heard as a child and you bring them forward to now we we discussed the situation with George Floyd, the the constant refrain that I hear from black folks is, I told you so. Right? How long have I been in spaces with white people and tried to tell them, this is how I feel. These are the things that I'm experiencing. This is what it feels like to be me in this space. And everything was, was dismissed because the person that we happened to be talking to was a sympathetic white person. right? And they said in their mind, well, I'm not like that. And so you should be fine. Or I'm not like that. So that diminishes the severity of the situation that you're trying to describe. And so when you look at George Floyd, a collective I told you so rings out from the African-American community, because for me, it's like, see, I told you that there's a reason why I clinch today, clinch my my wheel when I pass a police officer. Mm -hmm. Or I have to talk to my girls about when they see a police officer out in public 
or the fact that they can't interact with police officers in the same way that their white friends can. Because I've had negative experiences with police officers. And again, I've also now, at this age in my life, had some extremely positive interactions with them. And so have been able to really have a more well-rounded relationship with, with officers of all races. But those are things that you worry about because, again, it feels like you always, when you're in the presence of people who aren't your in your culture, that you always have to prove yourself. You always have to be uh, Superman, right? Um, <laughs> you know, you, you think about all of the the first blacks to X, Y, and Z, right? To fill in the blank, and it's like, wait, like average white guys get to do stuff all the time that bring <laughs> power yes. and money and and all these things to their life. But every black person, I mean, think about the number of average white baseball players who were playing Major League Baseball at the time Jackie Robinson integrated. It was clear that he was an all-star Hall of Fame caliber player when he came into the league. But he had to not only be an all-star Hall of Fame caliber player, but he also had to be an all-star caliber person. He could have zero character flaws. He could never let his guard down, whether he was in public or in private, because that's the standard that's been set. And so as you look across the landscape and you see this level of expectation being placed on this generation, right, along with this this collective cry that, hey, I told you so. I told you this is how I feel. I'm telling you this is what I, what it means to be me in this space. Um, it's, it gets tiring. And so you see this release in these violent acts or these protests or these, uh, these, this unrest that you see across the nation because it, it feels like finally someone is willing to listen to us. Um, and yes, we should be able to articulate ourselves in ways that are more constructive. And yes, we should not vandalize and tear up our own neighborhoods. I thought we learned that in Watts, but you know, it, the, the voice uh, of the hurting is, is violence and protest. And we've seen that throughout the history of this country. The problem is it feels like the voices still aren't being heard. It's, wow, that was just amazing. Thank you for that. It, it's as though you have to constantly, throughout your life, prove a negative, right? Or disprove a negative. Absolutely. I'm not that way. That's not who I am. But because... Right these stereotypes have been around for such a long time and they're just inculcated into thinking and certainly have been displayed, you know, visually through literature, et cetera, that it's, um, yeah. So no one's given a first chance to show who they are. It's, it's kind of interesting, right? I, I really, it is searing to hear the need to distrust um, white people, certainly earned. But that just so that the child or the teenager or the the young person stays safe, right? So you need to disprove what people think that people who look like you are, and you need to be better than anybody because you have to prove that you're not that stereotype. But wait, there's more, right? There's more. But don't get angry and don't show your angry and frustration no matter how tired you are, because that only helps to underscore people saying, see, to your point, to but, but to kind of flip it, we told you so. Right. Absolutely. Right. Which it seems so, gosh, this is such an interesting conversation. It, it feels as though the experiences aren't 
parallel in terms of the benefits and the disadvantages by any means. But how interesting to note that there are these kind of um, stereotypes used for both colors. And it's really done, I would say, as a protective measure, which is built on fear, which, of course, there's no way to be compassionate or empathetic in those terms. So it is this, it's this protective because you should fear versus, yeah, the, yeah, there's really nothing different, right? It's right, just, right. it's, you know, people who were just not thinking, use this racial construct. Well, no, they were, they were completely complicit using this racial construct to divide and conquer, to demean, to dehuman, to other, um, et cetera just for their own, I would say, for their own economic benefits going back hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. So, and that, you know, it's interesting as you, as you began to talk more and more, and I really do appreciate the honesty, Devin, and I, I knew you would be, but just, you can hear the concern when you talk about the girls, you can hear the concern, certainly as, as a teen, you don't want to screw it up, but, but good Lord, the pressure, just right. thinking about adolescence and thank goodness, none of us have to go back to that, but just thinking about adolescence and the pressure and then to be put into a classroom where you were othered, I, I suspect, um, mm-hmm. and having to still, you know, stay singularly focused on the that's not me. I'm not that stereotype while right. trying to figure out who you were while trying to bridge these communities just even in your own mind, while trying to be sure that the that this subtle, and I'm sure it wasn't all subtle, uh, vestiges of racism that were probably practiced in your company and then obviously behind your back, that, that you constantly had to be, oh my gosh, it's like being in the middle of something where everybody is getting ready to pounce. Um, right. So would you talk to me about what you learned as a teenager and then how that shaped where you decided to go to school and kind of the career trajectory. Cause I think that's obviously childhood has such an important impact on who we define ourselves, even, you know, decades later. Right. Well, I think my childhood is the reason why I chose to go into the field of education. The most impactful people in my life uh, still to this day were teachers and coaches. And so One of the things that I know for a fact is today I would not be where I am had it not been for men and women in the classroom and on the fields who helped to shape and reshape my life. And so those interactions were so pivotal because not only was I able to see success and achievement and um, things that I could aspire to and encouragement, I was also able to see within education some of those walls be broken down, right? So some of those barriers, those those racial constructs being torn apart, both on my part and on the part of the people that I interacted with uh, in ways that allowed me to see the importance of that. And so from deciding to become a math major in college uh, to where I have decided to focus my academic pursuits in Christian education are all a result of the fact that that men and women all throughout my childhood poured into me and, and truly helped me to understand that education was the vehicle that would allow me to change my life trajectory in ways that I never could have imagined. 
so as I mentioned, I moved uh, out of the inner city in Chattanooga in middle school and moved to Tullahoma, Tennessee, uh, which is a small town in southeast middle Tennessee, and truly became an orphan. My mom, as I mentioned to you, was, was a child who grew up in the 80s. Uh, and the crack ep- epidemic that ravaged so much of that generation within the black community. Uh, unfortunately, she wasn't able to, to escape. And so she was actually incarcerated most of my high school and college years. And so I became a ward of the state. And so the entire community there in Tullahoma came alongside me. Uh, actually, last week, we laid to rest one of my mentors. She was a former educator and my former Sunday school teacher who every day, uh, as this little orphan kid who didn't belong to the community, didn't have family ties, she was one of many folks in my life that encouraged me through education. As I got to college, it was because of a mentorship relationship that I had with a professor. I intended to be a history teacher, and one of my math professors, again, saw something in me. He was a white man who said, hey, there haven't been many Black men to come through this program, and if you want to be in education, what better, more solid foundation to be able to stand up in front of your students and say, I came from an inner city background. I came from a broken academic experience because I went to a different school, elementary school from kindergarten all the way up through eighth grade. And so there were holes in my academic career that I never overcame until I got to college. And he said, how amazing would that be that if you were able to overcome those things and now be in a position to teach and educate them? Thank you for all of that. So Devin, talk to me about high school grad going to, I believe it was Suwannee. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. Um, I know here's where I come from. So for some of my friends of multi-generation, tell me that particularly on predominantly white campuses, even today, it is either marveled at or questioned or isn't seen as um, legitimate that a person of color may be, especially at a, at a select school. And I, <laughs> listen to you. <laughs> no, oh, really? Oh, this is a new Gosh, Deb, how fabulous. Now you're telling me something I didn't know. Um, yeah, I know. Nice fumble. Um, so as I, um, as I try, to, try to pass the ball to you without sounding any more completely ignorant, would you talk to us about that? Absolutely. So... So, so there were a number of factors that led me to Swanee and led me through Swanee. And I think those are, those are two distinguished pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to Swanee primarily because I wanted to play football. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I wasn't good enough to play in the NFL. And so my, my natural thought was, where can I go to get the best education possible and get a chance to play as much as I possibly could? And, and Swanee fit the bill for, for both of those pieces. When I got there, there were two gentlemen uh, in particular who completely changed the trajectory of my experience at Swanee. Uh, one is a man who just uh, retired, actually announced his retirement this spring, uh, a man by the name of Eric Benjamin. And Eric Benjamin came to Swanee from Atlanta during the height of the civil rights movement when Swanee was just starting to integrate. And he was a part of a small group of African-American men who came to the mountain to effect change. And Mr. Benjamin stayed for almost 40 years. Uh, And he served 
as a liaison between the students who came to the school who are African-American multicultural and the university at large. And so his office literally was the heartbeat of the campus because in that space, we could be ourselves, we could take off the mask, we could have a wise sage be able to speak into us and encourage us and to remind us of why we were there and what the ultimate purpose was and to advocate on our behalf. I know specifically on two occasions that I may not have stayed at Swanee had it not been for Mr. Benjamin advocating on my behalf on that campus. Uh, the other person, and, and these were kind of one and the same people, uh, was one of our deans of students. Uh, Eric Hartman came to us and said, you guys are not participating in the, in the campus fully. How can I support you? And from that, he allowed us to, to start a service organization that's still in existence today on campus. He gave us a voice on campus. Can you imagine in 2000, he allowed us to uh, have a panel discussion and he required all freshmen who were pledging fraternities and sororities to attend this panel discussion entitled Race Matters. And we had read Cornell West's seminal book and we had individuals throughout the community from sororities and fraternities, the academic world, the social world, all in a panel discussing issues of race, not only in our lives, but historically. And we got to talk in deep levels about things that were controversial at the time, such as the Confederate flag and the N-word and interracial dating and uh, social justice and activism and uh, affirmative action and all of those things, which allowed the community, A, to see us as a vital piece of the community, to have the administration affirm our presence and our experiences there, and also engage in dialogue with folks who we probably would not have had the, the opportunity to, to engage with. If you can imagine, my second semester senior year, 2002, uh, at Swanee, I had a conversation with, with a girl who was my age in college in 2002, and we were working on a project, and she told me that was the first conversation she had ever had with a Black man in 2002. Wow. And it was all because she was forced to attend a seminar, a panel discussion, because an administrator saw value in our experiences and knew that we weren't engaging, not because we didn't have anything to bring to the table or that we didn't want to, but we didn't feel at home or comfortable. And so those two men, Eric Hartman and Eric Benjamin, opened up their doors and opened up an opportunity to allow us to speak into the broader community. And that changed our experience uh, completely. We felt like Swanee was our home finally. Uh, and we've talked to generations before us and since then uh, who, who have all said that that piece was a similar piece, not only for us, but also for, for, for African-American students to come. Uh, and they have continued to grow that program. So belonging is a key piece to the college experience. And unfortunately, a lot of African-American students came to Swanee and didn't stay primarily because they didn't feel at home. They didn't feel that that was a safe space for them. But we were able to overcome some of those with the support of Mr. B and Mr. Hartman uh, to, to really make that place our own, which, which had a profound impact. So what lessons from that experience do you bring to New Hope Academy as head of the school in terms of building voice in these young students? building the community of belonging and 
erasing othering? How do you do that now as a leader, somebody like Mr. Benjamin and like Mr. Hartman? Absolutely. So one of our core values at New Hope Academy uh, is that we believe in the personhood of a child. And so what that means is we don't see children as these empty receptacles that we as the adults pour knowledge or pour information or pour experiences into to fill them up so that they can go into the world. We believe that God made them fearfully and wonderfully, and they have something to offer and bring to the table today. And so whether they are four years old or 12 years old, we affirm their personhood and we allow them space to express those those ideas and those concerns. We, we allow for them to have agency over their life in some areas. And so we encourage them to step out into that into that ability that they're not waiting for the adults to give them permission to live the way that God's called them to live, that we are here as, as a guide, right? Uh, so to use a so to use a football term, uh, we're, we're, we're there to be their lead blockers and we're, we're there to clear the path for them to, to walk in the gift that God's given them. And so every day I, I try my best to affirm the girl who is sitting in the back of the class who doesn't feel like she's smart in math or the boy who doesn't speak so well publicly or read so well, or the little kid who has this great idea but just doesn't have the words to put it together, we try to affirm as a community, right? We believe that the parents are the primary educators of the kid. And so it's imperative that our our parents and our administrators and teachers walk together so that we can support our children. And that's exactly what Mr. Benjamin and Mr. Hartman did for us. They not only engaged us in conversations and encouraged and in, in some ways pushed us uh, to do things that were hard, right? Things that we weren't comfortable with. I remember uh, being asked to speak in front of the board of trustees at the University of the South as a junior in college, which was a daunting task, but they believed in me and they encouraged me and they pushed me to do that. Uh, and so now I stand up and speak in front of people all the time uh, because of people like them throughout my life who you know, were the lead blockers in my life to allow me to be what God had called me to be. Wow. Dr. DeLauder, you are a blessing. So Devin, with all that you have given us and not only just the personal timeline, but the angst and anxiety, uh, particularly of being a black male in this society, what would you have whites do? And that can be on a local, regional, I mean, at whatever level and through whatever venues, what can whites do? Help me understand what I can do not help, right? But to walk alongside and change this systemic racism we have in this country. Absolutely. Well, I think a lot of times we, we want to come up with these deep philosophical responses to these these true um, kind of pivotal moments. But I'll, I'll say it like like we would tell one of our elementary students at school is to, to look, listen, and feel, right? You mm. want to be able to truly use your eyes and your heart to look at the experiences that are around you. Um, one of the things that I've consistently reminded when I talk to folks who want to engage in this conversation who aren't Black is they don't have the burden uh, or the blessing, however you want to look at it, of waking up every morning recognizing that they are other. And so it's not necessarily that people are indifferent to the experiences uh, of Black folks. They just haven't taken the time to stop and listen and look 
at the at what's around them and truly try to develop compassion. I think the thing that hinders that opportunity most often is this sense of guilt, right? So as I mentioned, most people want to jump to the end and find solutions. But when you do that in this process, what comes along with that is this inherent level of guilt, right? So so folks like you who are white, who want to engage in this community, or who want to engage, engage in this conversation, automatically take on this sense of guilt for what has happened in the past or what has been done to individuals. And so the question is, well, how do I fix that guilt within me as opposed to taking that guilt and replacing it with compassion? We can't do anything about the past. We can recognize the past. We can acknowledge the past and we can use our experiences in the past or the experiences of others who we have built relationships with and are living in a community with and truly take those experiences and move forward every day, trying our best to make it better. But I think as we move in that process, if we stop, look, listen, and feel for what it feels like for everyone to be in our community and to ask the hard questions without guilt, then we can we can truly start to make progress and start to build those senses of compassion within individuals and organizations and nations so that we can create change. That is so beautifully put. I, and it's interesting. It's all it's as though you called me out and I'm not even in the same room with you. I mean, when I've never heard it said, if you are a person of color in America, how you wake up. And the orientation to your day versus somebody who is within the power structure, right? right. And honest to goodness, like you were right here. So, I, and immediately my heart got very heavy, very heavy. But then you said, hey, check that. It's okay, right? That's the beginning. Right. But don't come to me with sympathy. I don't want it. Right. And don't come out of guilt. Let's just move forward. And it, and it is not a to-do list. It is a recalibration of thinking, of feeling, uh, to your point, of looking at life, of listening to others and lifting up who everyone is for what they are, where they are, from the communities they've come from, because then the humanness of people is something that we will begin to lift and right. not feel shame, not feel guilt, not feel anger. I mean, we'll have to go through those emotions. It'd be an, and I think that benefits the growth. If we just tried to move from where we are to, you know, Kumbaya, then we miss the point of growth. We miss the point of understanding and, and learning. Right. Um, so I appreciate you, you saying that. As, as we wrap, Devin, thank you so much for this time. We'll obviously continue our own conversation, but uh, hopefully this will spark conversations in others. Is there anything else you'd like to impart to the white community, particularly as it relates to being parents in a school, maybe even in a school that is uh, predominantly white? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think I, I can take exception to the title of the book, but I think the the message is, is really clear. There's a book entitled Do Hard Things. It's intended for students to push them out of their comfort zone to do things that will be beneficial long term, but they may not appreciate or enjoy in the moment. And again, a lot of times uh, I'll, I'll give you a church example. When you go to church, most people have their favorite seat. 
Uh, they have the folks that sit around them in the same space because they get the best view and that's where they sit in the space. But if they see a visitor come in, and even if that visitor takes their seat, they're going to respond to them in compassion because they realize that they've come to enjoy the same thing that they've come to enjoy. A lot of times I see white brothers and sisters who say, oh, that person is in our community. They must be like me or they must be experiencing it like me. And so they're here and I'm here. And so by osmosis or some other form of, of interaction, we're going to become a, a true community because we share this experience. As opposed to taking that 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 perspective on the situation, I would say do hard things. Do the things that may not be natural, may not be comfortable at times, uh, and may actually be hard um, because we believe at New Hope Academy, and I believe this as, 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 as a mantra of my life, is that a diverse life experience and a diverse education is the tr- only true way to have an excellent education. In the same way I think is true in life. A, a life filled with diversity is truly the only way that you can experience life to its fullest, the way uh, the creator made it to be. And so you want to seek out those opportunities because you learn and grow in your own self, even if it's just to say, I understand their perspective, but I like my way better. That in and of itself, that process enhances what you have as a person in this experience because you now understand more fully what the experiences of others are like. And I, and I think it's human nature to an extent to assume that everybody's experience is like ours, that we see the same thing and hear the same thing and interpret it the same way. When in actuality, if we just reached over the aisle and had a conversation, we'd see that we receive that in a different way. And that might be able to enhance your experience in this, in this, uh, in this setting as well. Thank you, Devin. That was a great way to end this conversation and to to move forward. Thank you, Dr. Devin DeLauder, for coming and speaking with us at 3 a.m., What's Keeping You Up at Night, and being a part of this series where some of us are trying very, very hard to go beyond just simply understanding to action. And you have given us some terrific things to think about, to look, to listen and to feel, most importantly, the lives of those who are not the same as we are, who have different experiences, and in a single room, in in a collective room where we all feel we know exactly how everyone else is feeling, we lose that moment to come together, seemingly because we, we look different. Right. So thank you, Devin, this has been wonderful. Thank you. It was an honor to have a conversation with Dr. Devin DeLauder within this series, White to Racist, on 3 a.m., What's Keeping You Up at Night. His humanity guided this conversation. Hopefully all of us who heard his story will make a collective commitment to take action and look, listen, and feel the lives and experiences of our neighbors, colleagues, and yes, strangers, so that we may call out the stereotypical lies our literature, our movies, our songs, our culture has viciously spread about and end this artificial dividing up of the human race by the amount of melanin in a person's skin. My name is Deb McFarlane Enright. Thank you for joining us for this episode of 3 AM, What's Keeping You Up at Night, a production of the McFarlane Group. 
Please share these conversations in this series with those you believe will benefit most. Our series, White to Anti-Racist, continues with a conversation about race and religion. Visit our website and enjoy our just-launched blog, Blogging Out Loud Now, crafted under the genius of anchor blogger Dr. Jocelyn D. Bridell, who shares her journey through her piece about microaggressionitis. There is so much to learn. Until next time.